Hyde Park United Methodist in Tampa, Florida, this is the Bible Project 2020, a journey to reading the Bible without fear or frustration. I'm your host, Matt Hotho. On this week's episode, Celia Furman and I sit down with the Reverend Elizabeth Arnold to discuss Luke 1 through 16. Liz is ordained in the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. She received a Master's of Divinity from Garden-Webb University's School of Divinity in North Carolina and is currently a Ph.D. candidate in New Testament at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. Her research focuses on the theme of wilderness in Luke-Acts as well as humor in the Bible. Liz has already published an article and book reviews, as well as serving as a doctoral fellow in the Candler Foundry, an initiative of Candler School of Theology to bring the best of the academy into local churches in Atlanta and beyond. Now, on to the episode. Elizabeth, welcome. We are so delighted to have you share the Bible Project with us. Um, This morning, we want to talk about Luke. So tell us about Luke. Why was it written? Who wrote it? And about what time it was written? Okay, well, those are all great questions, and I am very excited to talk about them. Uh, So the Gospel of Luke, unlike the other uh, Gospels that we have, Luke is the only one who actually gives us a formal prologue where he says why he's writing. So he lays out very nicely his thesis, and he tells us that other people have written Gospels. Other people have um, narrated the story, the life of Jesus, and the events of the early Christian community. And he says that he wants to be able to do that in order to communicate certain things and be able to benefit the Christian community that's existing in his time which is later than the exact time of Jesus. So we know that he's written uh, after other Gospels, and he follows the Gospel of Mark fairly consistently, enough for us to know that that was one of his sources that he says he researched. And so we know he's writing after the fall and destruction of the Jerusalem temple, um, but he's also writing after Mark. So more than likely, he's writing sometime around um, 80 CE, or perhaps a little later after that. And he's writing as uh, he dedicates his manuscript to Theophilus, which in Greek means the lover of God. Now, this could either be a patron that is sort of uh, providing funds for him to write this manuscript and research it, or he might just be uh, entitling this to we would say, dear reader, one who loves God and is seeking these kind of uh, questions and answers. But either way, this is also uh, setting him up as a very cosmopolitan writer. He's more than likely not located in Palestine. He tends to be a little fuzzy on his geography of that location. So we, we figure he must be writing from further away. He writes in very good, uh, elegant Greek. Um, which is a, a, a little bit of a step up from Mark. And to quote Carl Holiday, if the writer of Mark read the Gwinnett Daily Post, then we know that the Gospel of Luke writer is reading the New York Times. So that gives you a bit of a sense of what he's communicating and how he's communicating. Was Luke a, an apostle? Uh, we don't have any evidence that says that he was. Um, He's never mentioned as an apostle, and he also says that he is writing at a later time. So he says that 
my community that exists in the time we are now, which is probably several, several decades after the life and times of Jesus and the early apostles, he said, we received these traditions from those who were eyewitnesses. Um, so that makes us think that he's definitely saying that there is some distance between me and that early apostolic community. However, we do have portions of Acts, which is the Gospel of Luke's sequel. We do have portions of it where the writer, which is also whoever writes Luke, uh, lapses into using the pronoun we. And then we came to Rome uh, with Paul, and then we sailed on this ship. And so one of the theories that's been there is even if Luke himself was not an apostle, um, perhaps in the sort of later apostolic period, it may be possible that he had some connections with Paul or some of the others um, of that later period. So that's a, that is an absolute possibility. Okay. Well, you said he wrote in Greek. Mm -hmm. Was he a Jew or was he a Gentile? You know, that's a fascinating question. It's sadly one that we can't answer with any kind of certainty. Um, and, and the reasons are, there's such good reasons to possibly suppose both, one or the other. Uh, on one hand, the writer of Luke Acts is absolutely steeped in Israel's scriptures and knows Israel's history, um, knows Israel customs, um, knows, uh, and, and like I said, knows and quotes the scriptures very well and in really good context. On the other hand, the whole thrust of Luke's writing, both of his pieces, is very much how the gospel came to the Gentile world, which makes people think, is he a Gentile? And so our, uh, we, have, we have some evidence that says maybe he was a, a Greek-speaking and writing Jew, um, and maybe he was a Gentile. Um, so we don't know, which I think that's one of the great things about him is that obviously he was adept at both of those worlds enough um, to offer something that had real value to to members that are in both those communities. We've just finished the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, where there is absolutely not a peep about Christmas. Mm -hmm. And then we hit Luke and the Christmas story is amazing. Why do you think Luke spent so much energy on the birth of Jesus? When we say that Luke follows uh, Mark, obviously he only can follow Mark from where Mark begins, you know, which is uh, John the Baptist in the wilderness proclaiming. And yet Luke offers us these two chapters um, that really form um, an introduction or a prologue uh, to his work. And the answer that I would give that is that we remember that these are literary works as well as they are religious. And so in order to set up his story, to present all of the themes that he's going to trace throughout the rest of the narrative, he uses those two chapters to sort of condense those themes into sort of a nutshell snapshot. Um, we, we hear all of his themes, this sort of idea of universal salvation, the gospel being for everyone, for all the world, um, the, the, the gospel being news of great joy, um, the conflict um, in uh, that the world sees between the rich and the poor, uh, Luke's uh, dyads that he uses of men and women, both in prophetic roles, all of those 
you can find right there in those first two chapters. And that introduces his story really beautifully. How do you feel that Luke sees Jesus? Um, On the one hand, Luke is very, uh, very intentional about making sure that people understand that Jesus is first and foremost to be seen as a prophet. That he, Jesus is constantly referring to himself as a prophet. A prophet isn't welcome in his own town. Um, prophets have to go to Jerusalem to die. He's constantly referring to himself as a prophet. And what, what that really means in Luke's gospel isn't just that he's speaking prophetic speech, but that he's embodying prophetic action. Um, and of course, his crucifixion is ultimately this prophetic action that takes place. The other thing that Luke is very intentional about crafting uh, the portrait of Jesus is that Jesus is the suffering Messiah. And this is something that you can tell that Luke's community would definitely wrestle with. Uh, The Messiah should be the one coming to rescue us out of suffering, not someone who's actually suffering themselves. And so this, this idea that no, the Messiah is one who suffers and suffers prophetically on behalf of the people, um, Luke is Luke constantly returns to the idea that this is God's plan. He says this in the early chapters of Acts. This was according to the plan of God. And Jesus several times over predicts his death and says, it's appointed. It is necessary. God has ordained that the Messiah must suffer. Mm-hmm. And so those two, two uh, character mm-hmm. portraits of Jesus as both a prophet and as a suffering Messiah are very much how Luke is intending his audience to understand who Jesus is. Are there controversies in Luke that people wrestle with that have not, that are unresolved? Well, there are certainly uh, controversies. Of course, there's some of them are of different natures. Uh, There are certain things in Luke that make us uncomfortable that people aren't really sure how to resolve. One of those things being the tension of, How do we reconcile a wealthy patron uh, commissioning Luke to write this gospel, if if that is indeed what happened, and Luke's overt criticism of the wealthy and God's chosenness of the poor? How do we reconcile wealthy Christians in a world with poor when Luke constantly over and over says that it is the poor that are blessed— it is, and that God favors them. And yet we have people that are in the narrative and people like possibly Theophilus who are outside the narrative that are wealthy people. And so this question of how are we supposed to faithfully handle wealth and possessions, but also navigate the, the aspects of justice that God expects, expects us to carry out in our world. That's a real area of tension that some people aren't sure how do we resolve those two aspects of Luke. If, if the Christian story is going to grow in its reach to Gentiles and to non-Jewish mm-hmm. people, it, conceivably you'd want it to reach other people in the society and those people might be wealthy. How do you yes. reconcile that with Luke's emphasis on poverty and the value of poverty? Is that, is that sort of the conflict as well? Um, that, yeah, that's certainly one of them. And the, the fact that we, we see these sort of reversals of honor, mm-hmm. um, for instance, Luke loves the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And it's this idea that if you were wealthy during your lifetime, uh, you will be impoverished in the afterlife. And that, that's a, a very difficult thing to, um, to resolve 
for people who are God-fearing and uh, do good works while they're here on earth. So how do we get that kind of Christian participation to use their wealth and possessions uh, in a godly way if we also see these really harsh sort of um, more black and white movements between the rich and the poor in Luke's gospel, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Does he give us an answer? (laughs) Um, I think the the way Luke works is he gives us many answers. And that's why we get such wonderful character development in Luke's gospel. So we do get the rich man and Lazarus, you know, and we get these these great sort of textures that this man was so poor and, and so ill that the dogs would come and lick his sores, you know. But then we also get the story of Zacchaeus just a few chapters later. And Zacchaeus is a very wealthy man, but who seeks earnestly after Jesus. And Jesus says to him that salvation has come to his house and has visited with him and that he is a child of Abraham. Um, So in one sense, we see the wealthy in a certain light, but then we also see the wealthy in this generous um, repentance spirit. And so I feel like uh, Luke gives us a couple answers as to how the story might play out, but it's very dependent on the level of obedience that a follower has to Jesus. And, And that's one area that Luke is very uncompromising that we all may end up in different places, but if we follow that path of obedience, um, then we, uh, we, uh, God's judgment isn't uh, for us to fear. You mentioned Luke probably also wrote the book of Acts. Mm-hmm. Why is it in two separate books? Why isn't it all together? Well, one of the theories is that there's um, a certain amount of distance in time so that Luke wrote the gospel um, and then possibly, you know, several years to several decades later um, wrote Acts. One of the big questions has always been, did Luke always intend to write a sequel or was it something that just happened? And um, I think for the most part... I would say that the reason that he's writing these two separate documents is that the gospel is really giving us a portrait of Jesus and that the acts of the apostles gives us um, a mirror of Jesus in the Christian community. So it's, it's showing how here's this portrait of Jesus and it's being reflected in the Christian community even up until this day. And so Luke starts out his very first work with this is to lay out how all of these things have been fulfilled among us. So he's really trying to make the connection that what began with Jesus never really ended, but has continued to bear witness and continue to have an effect even up until the time that he's writing. Okay. Sequels always play well. Too. Yeah. <laughs> well, the first one was so popular, he had to write another one, right? <laughs> right, right. I, I remember the first time I, I learned that Luke Acts was sort of the same author. And it mm-hmm. it so surprised me because John sits in the middle. And obviously, that's sort of because of how it was all canonized. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think for the for the modern church reader, you know, just the layperson mm-hmm. reading, that's a really cool thing to be like, okay, there is real historical people behind these documents that are in this big book that I read for edification and for hope. Uh, But there's also a story of some guy who's writing a double volume story of Jesus and the early church. And that's just cool that that's preserved in our text. 
And when we think about it, when you combine Luke and Acts, that comprises more than a quarter of the New Testament. So that's really, yeah, it blows your mind to think about it, that this makes up such a huge part, not just of our, of our New Testament scriptures, but then think of how much that sustained story influences our Christian theology and practice. And that's a really powerful thing to think about. Like you said, Celia, earlier, you know, this is where we get the Christmas story, all of the angels, you know, the shepherds. Um, this, this gets played out year after year after year. And this is Luke's gift to us in giving us this beautiful, long two-part narrative. Well, he writes so much better than a lot of the other authors do that you enjoy reading it again every year. Uh, one of the things I noticed in your biography, biography is that you like to look for the humor and comedy in biblical text. Where have you seen humor in the first part of Luke? Well, <laughs> all right, since you asked. Um, <laughs> all right, I've always thought it was so funny that, uh, in, it, that Luke uses that birth narrative, right, to connect us it, not just to, to lay out what's going to happen in the rest of his story, but it's also a hinge. That birth narrative connects Luke's story to the rest of Israel's story. Because when we hear Elizabeth and Zechariah were without children, and yet they were faithful, obedient Israelites, who does that make us think of? Abraham. Abraham, right, exactly. Isaac and Rebecca, we think of the patriarchs and the matriarchs, right? And, and uh, Zechariah is in the temple when he receives from the angel Gabriel this news that his wife was going to have a child. And Zechariah, of course, says, oh, I just don't know if that's going to work out. I mean, I'm old, she's old. And so Gabriel said, well, since you didn't believe, you're going to be cursed with being silent. And sure enough, you know, after some time, his wife is found to be with child. And I always have thought it's not much of a miracle because if a man as obtuse as that finally shuts <laughs> up, it's not surprising that that's when they would finally get pregnant. I'm like, to me, I'm like, folks, this isn't as miraculous as you want to think it is. <laughs> I think we found out what was stopping up the works here. <laughs> Bravo. That's Bravo. great. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. On that same thing, I understand that your thesis, your PhD thesis is on the wilderness mm -hmm. in Luke Acts. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, I was always so surprised when I would hear this rhetoric that the Luke Acts scholarly community has that Mark is the wilderness gospel mm -hmm. and that Luke is the very cosmopolitan, metropolitan gospel. And at first blush, it seems like that might be so. Uh, Mark's Jesus is definitely more rural, spends a lot more time in Galilee, um, even has the resurrection appearances told to happen back in Galilee. So constantly going back to the rural. Um, and Luke, of course, does not only focus more on the city of Jerusalem as the site for resurrection appearances, but then Luke's gospel takes, um, you know, the missionaries and apostles to all these huge cities throughout the empire, Ephesus and Corinth and Athens, and eventually all the way to Rome. And so you would think, well, that, that makes sense. But when we look at the two parts of Luke and Acts, uh, 
there's actually more references to the wilderness than any of the other gospels. Hmm. And what I think is really interesting is that although we have all this fanfare that happens in the first two chapters, uh, the place where Luke's gospel itself really begins is just where John the Baptist begins in the wilderness. And uh, that's where the, the word of God actually takes the agency. And it says the word of God came to John the Baptist in the wilderness. And when you start tracing all of these wilderness themes, uh, you start seeing that the wilderness is this place of, of, of radical possibility. The, the devil shows up there. Um, uh, Jesus does a miraculous healing in a wilderness place. I mean, a miraculous feeding in a wilderness place. In Acts, the Ethiopian eunuch becomes the first baptized Gentile, where in the wilderness. All of these things recall Israel's story, and it also starts describing what goes on in the kingdom of God. It's this place of radically open possibility where all of the circumstances and the structures of the inhabited world start getting turned on their head, so much so that the Roman authorities say these Christians are turning the world upside down, meaning they're making our organized society into this type of wilderness place. Um, and so that's essentially what my um, dissertation is about. Well, some of us who feel like we've been in a wilderness for the past six months, eight months, whatever it is, then we should be looking for God to start doing some amazing things in our lives if that's where it all is happening. Well, uh, and uh, by contrast, we should look where God is undoing some things. Tell me more. What do you mean by undoing? Well, uh, like I said, when someone goes into the wilderness, um, they don't just go there for things to happen to them, although they have these supernatural encounters in the biblical material. But when they go into the wilderness, they're also undone in some ways. Think about it. When Israel first comes into the wilderness, when they're liberated from Egypt, it wasn't just to get them to the promised land. But as uh, Dr. Ryan Bonfilio, who's been on your show before, says, it was also to get Egypt out of the Hebrew people. And so very often when people are going into the wilderness in scripture, it's not just to make something new. But before that happens, some of the old things have to be unmade. And so I I sort of see your point that this quarantine time, uh, not only is it a wilderness where we might be made new, but where we've had to part with some of the things that we thought we needed to have and let those things become undone before God can start creating something brand new. What a joy it was to have Liz join us on this week's podcast. Her humor and insights were wonderful. If you want to hear more from Liz, be sure to join our Bible Project 2020 group on Facebook, where some additional parts of our conversation will be posted later this week. We're still worshiping online Sundays at 9.30 and 11 a.m. You can join us on Facebook or at hydeparkumc.org forward slash live. Celia Furman produced this episode. I'm Matt Hotho. See you next week.